all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is a glorious Wednesday morning in the South. That's right. I can say that in August. If you've been outside today or earlier, as I was up about 530, you noticed that there was a distinct change in the air. We could actually breathe uh, without feeling like you were just in the middle of a skillet. Um, so it was, uh, man, it was nice, uh, this morning, still nice today. Still want to be careful out there, even though the temperature has dipped a bit, it looks like we've got in the forecast, at least, uh, some higher temperatures, uh, throughout the next couple of weeks, but, uh, hopefully, hopefully this is a good taste of what's to come. And certainly I know myself and a lot of other people are going to be really happy to get out there. I've been forcing myself to get out there and probably placing full disclosure, myself in some health uh, risk from time to time that I would not uh, want to extend to any of our listening audience. But uh, there were a couple of days I got out that I was like, ooh, that was a little too hot to get out at that time of day. So the doctor needs to take his own advice on uh, on doing things when it's a little bit cooler. But I hope you are doing that, too. Hope you can get a a chance to uh, to enjoy uh, the weather today. Uh, out there and maybe come up with some plans for the fall. It's always these types of transitions from the hot, humid uh, southern uh, weather patterns that we have these days. It's always nice to sort of think, okay, what am I going to do for my own health physically and mentally uh, moving into the fall? And maybe that's a little bit different. Maybe you can get back out there like our producer uh, Kevin Farrell to the courts a little bit more and uh, play some tennis or maybe it's uh, something else. But getting out there and doing something you enjoy, particularly if it's with <clears throat> the company of other people in a social environment, that's definitely some things that are better for your health overall as you um, as you move forward. Uh, so think about that. Come up with a plan. Uh, maybe invite some other people to do that. I know I'm trying to do that, too, and uh, all the things that I'm doing. So you might want to, uh, to just um, uh, take some time to plan that out. So this is the time that you can call in with any kind of questions that you might have about your health or the health of someone in your family or a friend even. Maybe it's a new, uh, new symptom, new diagnosis, new medication, whatever it is, let us know, and we will try to get you the answers that you need. We're going to go to our first caller now, Jeff from Alabama. Good morning, Jeff. Hello, how's everything? Good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, it's been hotter than you don't know what. 
Um, but I've got a uh, heat rash, I've, and it's pretty much all over the top half of me. Um, we don't have air conditioning, so I'm going to have it for the duration, I have no doubt. Is it harmful, or is it just a, a pain? Yeah, it can. So true heat rash is actually um, uh, miliaria rubra is the is the fancy name. You know, we have to like we go through all the training. We have to use the words. Uh, but basically, it is an inflammatory conditions uh, condition on the skin that is in direct response to increased heat. And some people have it more than other people. And it does have, uh, there are some, a couple of things. It's not really anything that is majorly wrong that like nobody ever died of heat rash, but, um, typically it is an interaction with bacteria on your skin. So a gentle exfoliation with soap sometimes after you get out, you know, some people will have that and then they'll, they'll have some pruritus. They'll have some itching with that on their skin. If you take a shower right after that and don't scrub hard, but just a gentle exfoliation with soap and water, sometimes that alone will cool the body down and will also, uh, you know, sort of cleanse the skin right there. If you have some areas that persist after that or you have a particular, um, you know, sort of bad uh, reaction to things like that, then uh, to the sun sunlight that and some people are a little bit more sensitive than others, then you could use like a topical steroid, something like hydrocortisone to a small area. If you have just just some flares, there have been some studies looking at um, topical antibiotics since this is an interaction with the bacteria on the skin. And that has been shown in some instances to decrease that inflammatory response from those bacteria that are sort of proliferating there. And those can be things like bacitration, uh, mupuricin is another topical antibiotic that's been uh, that's been been shown. Uh, dermatologists sometimes they'll they'll um, do a swab of the skin to sort of grow out what type of bacteria or what's going on right there. But because uh, there's a little bit of differences in how you treat it based on that. And these are mainly for people that have a really profound reaction. But for most people, I would say um, wear loose-fitting clothing that's not going to impede. You know, things like cotton is is great in some ways, but it sort of hangs on the skin, and it, it keeps that moisture right up next to your skin. And for some people with heat rash, those can be the types of clothing that is the worst clothing to have. If you have clothing that's sort of textured and fits off the skin or some of the newer synthetics, that'll help wick that moisture away from the skin. And that does two things. It cools you, but it also uh, changes sort of the environment for the bacteria so that they're not able to reproduce as much on the skin. So uh, that coming in, washing off, soap and water, those things usually do it. But it's not really anything to worry about. I know people when they hear like bacterial infection on the skin, if you took everybody in a room full of 100 people and you swab their skin, even if they just came out of the shower 20 minutes ago before they came to that room, every single one of those people, you could demonstrate bacteria on the skin. It's just something that grows on our skin. It sits around on the skin. And normally that doesn't cause any kind of problems. Now, a lot of people are horrified to hear that. And they're like, I just, you know, I don't like the the to think about there's bacteria on the skin. That's the environment in which we live, and that's not a bad thing most of the time. 
if you have a cut in the skin, you know, our, our skin acts as a barrier to those bacteria from getting underneath and into the other tissues that we have. But, um, yeah, just simply showering off with a mild soap or detergent, that's fine. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Sure, Jeff, and stay cool out there. Yeah, heat rash is uh, it's sort of misunderstood by a lot of different people, but it is brought on by that heat more so. Some people have sun reactions to the skin, too, but which is more of like a intensity uh, burn to the skin and then an inflammatory response to that. Same kind of thing. You want to cool off first. Uh, steroids a little less effective in that in that instance, but um, mainly just getting the body cool. Sometimes people will take antihistamines with that too, things like Benadryl, uh, Zyrtec. That can help somewhat. It's more for the true allergic responses and not an inflammatory response, though. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, sort of a tangential follow-up question to that one. Um, I think I heard or read somewhere once that uh, to cool down, to take a shower, you should actually have maybe slightly warm water and not cool water like you might think. Am am I on the right track there? Yeah, you don't want to shock the body all at once, although cold plunging is all the rage now, right? But um, it's, it's it's the abrupt change. Okay, so if you're outside and you have gotten a little dehydrated and you've been sweating a lot, let's say you've been outside for 30 minutes or an hour, um, it's probably not a good idea to just jump right in a shower that's just really cold. Um, You know, just what what I would say to patients is. Turn on the shower to the temperature that you would normally do, but then turn that down a little bit to where it just starts to feel a little cold. You don't want to be freezing in the water. The other thing it does is it it changes where the blood flow goes. So you've got blood flow when you get hot, as it should be, close to the skin. If you look at your arms, your legs, you may notice that the surface veins are more engorged when you're hotter. That's so that your body can utilize the natural natural cooling apparatus that it has and can sweat. And normally, you know, what what would be optimal is that sweat evaporates from our skin, takes the heat with it, basically. So there's a heat transfer there and it helps cool our body down. That's at the expense of losing fluids, right, and electrolytes. So you have to keep, you know, keep taking that in. But what happens when you go from that straight to a cold shower uh, you actually can, you know, if you're not cooling the body down, you're, you could um, shift that blood a little too abruptly away from vital organs, and that can cause, you know, some damage, particularly if you've got other health problems. So if you've got heart failure, for instance, or kidney failure uh, or kidney insufficiency, I would be a little bit more cautious about doing that. Certainly, I wouldn't go into the shower if you like hot showers and come in from a hot, you know, outside environment and then immediately go in there. But, yeah, just a little bit sort of tepid water. It doesn't have to be super, super cold or, you know, doing your cold plunge. I do cold plunges, but, you know, that's you want to get your doctor's input on that before you just jump into the icy, frigid Arctic North. So should mention if you're not able to call, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Rick in Lakeland, Tennessee. Where's Lakeland, Tennessee, Rick? It's just northeast of Memphis. Okay, okay. I've probably driven around or through there probably on my way to other places, uh, but, um, but I just wasn't familiar with the name. Rick, what's your question for today? My wife is having bouts of 
low blood pressure. Uh, for example, this morning, she tested twice on the machine. Uh, I believe it was 85 over 48. Pulse was about 61 over 60. She's 67 years old, uh, what I'd call thin to medium build. So she's gone as far as potato chips and coffee for breakfast. But uh, what's would be your first thought. Does, does she normally have high blood pressure? Does she take medications for high blood pressure? No. Okay. And does she have any other medical problems? No. Okay. Yeah, so, so lower blood pressures can be a couple of different things. So the, one of the most common things, of course, is dehydration or not getting enough fluids in the body to maintain that homeostasis of that, that normal blood pressure. So that's one reason why you might have a lower blood pressure uh, typically, in those situations, unless you're on other medications or have other medical problems that that restrict your your pulse rate, your pulse rate would actually be higher than that. So usually, you know, at least greater than eighty, and that's just to help help maintain the same blood flow to the all the vital organs. Some of the other reasons might be an illness, and sometimes they can be very subtle. So some viral illnesses and the way that they interact with the body can make the blood pressure lower. There are other things that might cause the the blood pressure to drop. Um, And it's usually, you know, if you think about the blood pressure, it is a factor of the amount and the force of blood being pumped out of the heart that generates some force. And that's why we have two numbers on the blood pressure. The top number is when the, the heart contracts, the lower two chambers contract, and that is a measurement of that force of the blood on the vessel walls as it travels throughout the body. That's that top number or the systolic. The diastolic is when the heart relaxes, and those it's the still the pressure that those blood vessels sort of wrap around that blood that's in the uh, in the vasculature in the arteries. So the body has lots of nerves to the different, you know, different arteries to help control that. And it's usually, you know, everybody thinks about the the bigger arteries, but it's actually sort of the medium to small size arteries that control that blood pressure, um, that particularly the diastolic part of it. So you might have a lower blood pressure because the heart is pumping less forcefully or that there are some signals that aren't getting to the vasculature that are not making it sort of wrap around the blood and to contract those muscles in the arteries. Or there may be some problems from a kidney standpoint, too. So the kidneys have a major role in in playing uh, a part of this, as do a lot of other hormones, not the male and female hormones, but other hormones that regulate blood pressure and potassium and some of the other steroid hormones that do that. So a lot of different reasons why common things are common. I would do exactly what you were doing, although potato chips for breakfast, probably not my first thing, but you know, I tell, do tell people it's okay if you want to drink salt, honestly, for our eat salt, salty type stuff. But honestly, volume helps more than anything else. Um, certainly caffeine and the stimulating effects of that on blood pressure might increase it but it also might cause a diuretic effect afterwards so i just say it doesn't really matter what you drink water is perfectly fine and if the everything's working okay your blood pressure will go up um probably the first thing we should have started off with if you feel perfectly fine and it looks like your blood pressure is low i would just repeat it and if you're still feeling okay and particularly you're not dizzy when you get up from sitting then i might 
find a different blood pressure device to take that with because there there is a chance that maybe that cuff is just not accurately capturing the blood pressure. I've had a lot of patients where that happened and they're like, you know, I had my neighbor had a blood pressure cuff. I got theirs and it was perfectly fine on theirs. I felt totally normal. Um, so we don't want to treat the number. We want, we want to treat the patient and what's going on with them. But I think if she doesn't have any other problems, I would just drink plenty of fluids. If she feels okay, just repeat it. If it's still low on the monitor, I would get another monitor and check it against that before I jump to any conclusions about anything else going on. But if she doesn't feel good and it persists throughout the day, um, you know, at 67, I would probably call her physician's office and just say, hey, do y'all have, you know, a chance to see her or if, is there a chance that she could come by? And they're going to, first of all, you know, take a good history, do a physical exam. They may check a couple of things related to blood pressure and pulse rate and uh, maneuvers in the room to see what her volume status truly is. And then they may do some labs after that to try to determine what's the cause of it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. She has a doctor's appointment tomorrow. This will lay the groundwork for some good questions. Perfect. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling and listening. Uh, some people say, you know, I just can't. I, ca- I caught your your program the other day, uh, along with the other Southern Remedy programs at 11 on, on every other uh, day of the week. Um, but I'm not always able to catch it, but I sure do wish I could. And I tell them, hey, there's a way you can do that. So you may not be aware, but you don't have to. Li- we love when people listen in real time. That's great. That's what this program is designed to do. But we also have other ways to listen to Southern Remedy. So whatever your favorite podcasting app is, you just search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio and look it up and download it, and you can listen to our all of our Southern Remedy lineup programs um, anytime you want. So at your leisure, you can catch that. Or maybe you want to go back and listen to one that you just didn't you know, quite get the uh, – maybe you got the tail end of it and you didn't understand what the question was to begin with, you can go and do that. Or you can go to our website and listen to them as well. We do archive those. It takes about a day to do that. But uh, certainly you can go to MPB online to do that. So just some other ways that you can extend your listening time. Um, and I do that for a lot of the podcasts I listen to. I'll go back and say, oh, man, that was a good one. I don't need to go back and listen to the first half of that um, just the way my brain works. I like re-listening to things sometimes. Blood pressure concerns, whether it's high or low, tend to be sort of exacerbated during uh, various times of the year. A lot of people will ask about blood pressure questions, particularly around this time of year because of the heat. So it is common for people to do that. And it's important to, to note, you know, if we were talking about a medical condition like diabetes um, or strep throat, There are very specific tests that we can test for that would tell if a person had that condition or didn't have a condition. For diabetes, most of the time, unless we're talking about um, uh, patients that are pregnant, there's a test called an A1C, uh, hemoglobin A1C, which is an average of what the uh, the glucose is, the blood sugar is, for the the previous three months. And that is a very accurate um, tests that you can get. There are some, if you're severely anemic or have some other problems, you do have to sort of factor that in. But for most people, that is the best test to sort of determine if you're a pre-diabetic, diabetic, diabetic or, or not a diabetic. 
Same kind of thing with strep. You know, you have certain symptoms. We have a test, and the test is pretty good, particularly when it's combined with the symptoms uh, to make that diagnosis. But if you look at blood pressure measurement and um, diagnosing someone with high blood pressure, really the more readings you get, the more accurate it's going to be because we know that blood pressure does not remain the same. I know a lot of my patients are, are sort of uh, um, surprised by that. And they'll say, I thought my blood pressure would just, like a normal person's blood pressure would just stay 120 over 80 all the time. But it is designed to go up and down. And in fact, at night, it goes down about 20% when a person sleeps, as long as they're getting good quality sleep uh, at night or whenever they're going to sleep. So it does vary throughout the day. Generally speaking, it is lower at night. It starts to come up right before you awaken. And then it peaks out about mid-afternoon. About 3 p.m. is about when you're going to, um, with a normal sleep, sleep cycle, sleep-awake cycle for most people. That's about going to be the highest. So knowing those kinds of things can be very helpful in determining if someone has high blood pressure or does not have it. And one of the worst things we can do is just check the blood pressure. You know, I've gone out and, uh, you know, watered the garden and I'm really hot and I come back in. I just want to rush back in and check my blood pressure. Well, it might be really low in that situation. So you want to make sure that you come in, you're rested from whatever you're doing uh, for five minutes and that you're seated when you check it, both feet on the floor, your back is supported, you're not talking or doing anything else, you haven't smoked or eaten anything in the last 30 minutes. A lot of stipulations here for accurate blood pressure, right? Um, wrist monitors, uh, everybody who owns stock and wrist monitor co- companies, I'm sorry, but um, not as accurate as an, uh, a, a monitor that's on your arm. So on your upper arm, uh, there's plenty of companies that make some really good automated ones. In fact, those are the ones that we now we recommend in the office over a manual uh, reading. But you would want to have your arm supported um, like on a table or something like that or an arm, uh, the arm of a chair. And the cuff that fits around your arm, not the actual machine that reads it, but the cuff needs to be at the same level as your heart. So if the cuff is elevated above your heart level, that recorded blood pressure reading is probably going to be a lot less than what it truly is. Or if it's lower than your heart, it's going to be a lot higher than what the true blood pressure is. And um, a good physician who's treating, diagnosing and treating blood pressure will understand that the more readings you get, not just in the office, but at home, the more accurately we're going to understand what the true blood pressure is um, most of the time. So it is effective to do that. Now, I know some of you are very compulsive patients that, are, that, that really want to know exactly what your blood pressure is at every, every time of the day. Not really a need for that. In fact, it can be sort of counterproductive if you're fixated on it and you get anxiety every time it's high. I do have some patients that I've told, don't check your blood pressure anymore. It's just making it go higher and higher, and there's not a reason to do that. Um, but it, it can be useful, uh, particularly if you have the diagnosis of hypertension, to get a reading a couple of times a week, write that down. 
uh, write down the time it was of the day, either in the morning, afternoon, don't have to be too specific with that. And then give that back to your physician, because that can be very useful to see what your blood pressure is doing at different times of the day. And they may want to do something a little bit different with that management. But you generally have to have at least um, three different readings on two separate occasions before we can technically make the diagnosis of hypertension. And um, I like to have a couple of readings, home readings, as long as they're, you know, everybody understands that the accurate way to check blood pressure and are doing that accurately to compare and to, um, you know, to have that with a clinic reading. And most of the time, if I have a patient that comes in in our clinic, we have a protocol where if their blood pressure is elevated above their goal blood pressure, then we would repeat it with a blood pressure machine that that takes three separate readings um, and then uh, averages that out, and then we take the average blood pressure. That's sort of the gold standard. And there are home, um, you know, home uh, blood pressure cuffs that do this automatically, and it's very easy to do. So just a couple of things about that. So just to keep that in mind. So one blood pressure reading, particularly if you feel perfectly fine and you have either a extremely elevated blood pressure or lower, you want to repeat that at least. Now, if it remains high, Blood pressure is called the silent killer for a reason. Um, you can have zero symptoms and very high uncontrolled blood pressure. And the first symptom you have for some patients, unfortunately, is a heart attack or a stroke uh, or kidney failure. So it, just because you don't have any symptoms doesn't mean you don't need to pay attention to that. But one blood pressure reading, reading in and of itself is not enough to really make that diagnosis. Um, and then your physician can go into, you know, a little bit further um, uh, with um, the testing and with screening to see if this is uh, more of just sort of the run of the mill hypertension or if there's something else that might be uh, causing the blood pressure to be elevated. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions and maybe some emails. Let's go to Jack in Moscow, Tennessee. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. Thanks How are you? For, good. Thanks for calling. What's your question this morning? Hey, I um, have a lower back problem where two of my discs, um, I think it's the S, uh, L1, S5. L5, S1. Area. L5, S1 probably, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I get, if I walk too much or... I go to try to play tennis or something. The bottom of my foot gets numb. It kind of gets numb down my leg, but and my foot just becomes like I got to sit down. It becomes uncontrollable. I'm just wondering if surgery would help that. Yeah, so this is uh, what I would call a, a uh, neuropathy caused by a bulging disc. So there's a big bundle of nerves that comes from the back and it helps with both the sensation uh, down the leg and then also the motor function of the of the lower leg. So if it's between L5, that's the last lumbar vertebra, and S1, that's your sacrum, that's really an area that can cause pain in your foot and it can cause problems. And sometimes it can be all the way down the leg like that. It can be different for different people. But typically, if it gets to the, if it's just some pain, a little bit of numbness, most of the time, most um, physicians would try some more conservative things first 
um, because a lot of those will resolve in six to eight weeks by themselves or at least be lessened in severity through uh, a number of things. Physical therapy works wonders. Um, It is generally you sort of commit to that for about six weeks. And a lot of people will get some improvement in that. There are some medications that you can take that are non-opioids that can help with things like that, particularly if it's a a neuropathic type pain. Uh, Some of those are things like Lyrica or Gabapentin. Cymbalta also has been used um, to treat it. But if you've done all those things or if you're having progression of it to the point where you're losing motor function or numbness to the point where you might hurt yourself, certainly I can see some situations uh, like you mentioned, you know, with playing tennis, if you can't feel the bottom of your foot, that's going to make it really hard uh, to play. That's the point where I think I would talk to a surgeon and just to see what, you know, after they look at the scans, because again, just because you have a slip disc doesn't mean you need surgery, but there may be some specific reasons why surgery might be a good option at this point. Um, if you look at five-year data historically, and this has changed a little bit in the last five or 10 years, but most of the time, five years out from surgery, lower back surgery from a disc problem, the people who had surgery and the people who didn't have surgery have about the same outcome at five years. However, there may be individual people who have done all the conservative things and they're still having problems or it's progressing like you sort of described and surgery might be a good option to regain function and regain, you know, that sensation in the foot. But it there are some some nuances to that. But I, I would just get at least one or two opinions about that from a surgeon and ask very pointed questions. What's your complication rate for something like this? What's your success rate for something like this? Um, and get a good surgeon that that's pretty much all they do. Um, if it's a surgeon that does a lot of stuff, they may be really good, but the people who do stuff over and over and over again tend to be the best things. Makes sense if you're just sort of specializing in that. And uh, a lot of people say, well, neurosurgeon versus orthopedic surgeon, it really doesn't matter too much there, even though this is a nerve problem. Um, again, it, it has to do with the skill of that surgeon doing the procedure. Um, and they should have that. They should be able to provide you with that, with with some hard numbers on that. So. That's the kind of information I would want if I was in this situation and then, um, you know, sort of go from there. Okay. Well, I've tried the shots in the back and that worked a little for a little while, for about four or five months. And mm-hmm. the next time I had it, it didn't work at all. And um, to have a pentman and to Lyrica, they really don't, I don't know, they don't do a lot for me. You have to take them all the time. So I was just wondering if non-invasive surgery can be done or, or, or is there, does it have to go further? Yeah, minimally, you know, all of it's going to have to be invasive to some extent, but I think what you're alluding yeah, to I mean, is minimally, minimally inv- right. So they'll the, the ones that uh, you sort of see the... For some reason, I see this on airplane flights. Like they have the person at the beach, and they've got a little band aid, and they've just had their surgery, and they're at the beach. I think that's probably an oversimplification of it. But small incision, um, minimally invasive, not like the older incisions that were you know really long and and more involved. They had to cut through more tissue, 
Yeah, I think that certainly it reduces your risk of complications and how fast that you can recover from surgery. But again, I think I would just talk to one or two surgeons. But based on that, if you've had, if you've gone to a pain specialist, you've had the injections, you've tried the medications that we mentioned, your next step would be to talk to a surgeon to see what kind of outcomes they could potentially give you. Okay, well, I appreciate it. I just um, was wondering, in the back of my mind, if he gives me two options, non-invasive or invasive, where they have to do more work. Um, that is a legitimate question to ask him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I personally, I would always err on more mentally invasive, particularly if it's a disc surgery. There may be a very good reason why they need to extend that excision and cut through different tissues based on where that disc is pushing against. But L5-S1 in this type of scenario, and again, I'm not looking at your MRI or anything you know, to know exactly that, and I'm not a surgeon, but I would think that you would be an excellent candidate for that. It's not multi-level. It's one level of disease, and um, they probably could get to that minimally invasively rather than a big long scar you're the greatest <laughs> you can remember all this information well, but thank you very much well remembering it and and uh dealing with it in uh, uh with with medical students and medical residents uh keeps me young and keeps me invigorated i'm not sure i could do this on my own so it's a group effort but i do appreciate that jack good luck to you and thank you for calling this is um southern remedy go to ethan from cleveland mississippi good morning ethan good morning thanks for calling what's your question this morning Yes, sir. Um, I mainly just had a question about, so over the past, like, four or five months, I've been involved in, like, minimal carbs. It started out, like, five weeks, being, like, mainly the carnivore diet. Yeah. Uh, and then switched over from that because I wasn't feeling 100% and kind of did my own science experiment with my body, trying to test out exactly what my, like, my, my diet would be. Now, mainly it's just meat. Uh, peppers, mushrooms, onions, minimal vegetables, and, uh, well, a few vegetables, and mainly just fruit from my natural carbohydrates and sugar. And I just want to get your opinion on that and what you think the best option is. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody wants to know, like, what's the best diet? And it really does have to be tailored to the individual person. And there's several different factors that you have to know about. Number one is like other medical conditions. If you're young and you don't have a lot of medical conditions, you do have more options that have to do with your activity and your preferences and for some people that are particularly pretty active you know they may choose things like you described like a carnivore diet that's much much more towards protein less carbohydrates or low carbohydrates carbohydrates are our main energy source so if you're doing things like right. you know i know i know you know this this is sort of review but just yeah, for everybody lower your Right. Whenever you, I would do another question. Whenever you lower your carbohydrates, uh, that's your body drops your main energy source and moves over to ketones. Correct. Yep. That's it. And you do feel anybody who's eaten a big steak knows that if you eat that first, you feel fuller with protein. It just takes a lot longer to break down. Um, you can do the same kind of thing with a diet that has a lot more fiber in it. So some people will still have, they'll do sort of a low glycemic index diet. In other words, it still has some carbohydrates in there, but uh, they may be, you know, even 40, 50, 60% carbohydrates. 
but they have a lower glycemic index. In other words, they release those carbohydrates in those foods slower over time. Typically, that'll be foods that have more fiber in them. So you mentioned fruits, which are an excellent source of carbohydrates in our diet, very natural way. And a lot of those fruits will have extra fiber, which will make you feel fuller. And you can actually maintain weight or lose weight on those because of that. And a, a quick and easy way, you can certainly you can look at all this stuff up and see what the fiber content is in these foods and glycemic index and everything. But um, a quick and easy way to do that is just to think about things that you have to chew more, have more fiber in them. Um, so, for instance, like regular potato, baked potato, I'm sorry, regular potato and sweet potato. Uh, even though sweet potato has the name sweet, it actually is better for you than a regular potato. And if you think about that stringiness in it, that's the extra fiber. And uh, that's not the entire reason, but it does have a lower glycemic index than, say, a regular white potato that you would you would bake, for instance. As far as, like, long-term effects, all of these diets have been proven to, you know, to lose weight on. I just think you have to tailor it to your individual needs and reduce make sure your calorie intake is matching up with what you need to lose weight. Um, And then on top of that is our metabolism and everybody's different. You know, about 80% of your metabolism is determined genetically, but that 20% can be really modulated. I mean, we all know people like in our families that there are some people that lose weight incredibly easy easily and there's others that it you know they just struggle with it a lot more and that's that genetic component like the the, and once you gain weight it is incredibly challenging for a lot of people to lose it and to maintain it and a lot of them have to restrict their calories even more than what somebody else would but that 20 percent can be modulated but the, the other thing i would i would really pay attention to is how you eat and the certain type of eating behaviors if you know that there are things that set you off or that, you know, somebody says, eat broccoli, and you're like, there's no way I can eat broccoli, or broccoli causes me to have a lot of GI distress in some ways. That's fine. There's mm-hmm. other foods out there. I would, you know, personally, veggies are fine. Nobody's ever going to, like, gain weight on most, you know, on a varied diet of veggies. They do have a lot of fiber, and they can fill you up. So that might be an alternative, you know, to throw in there with with what you described. You do need some protein unless you're like really, really hitting it hard. Even if you are in weightlifting, uh, you can do the studies, uh, you know, and look at it. But basically, there's not as much, you know, you don't have to eat like a porterhouse every day to keep up with your protein needs in that situation. And it might actually be harmful to you if you're getting a lot of excess calories through the fat. So lean meats are obviously better. But I think what you described is a really good way of doing that. I hate that people that they get so fixated on one particular diet, you know, for a long time it was South Beach or, you know, low low carb or uh, carnivore. Those are all for individual people can be very useful. I had a patient of mine that was very successful. He was diabetic, had uh, heart disease, was on cholesterol medication and hypertensive. He was able to go from seven medications down to about three. And he just cut for him. He was on the road a lot working in con- on construction jobs. He just cut back. the. It was the carbs. And he just was like, you know, I just have to eat meat. And I'm fine with that. And I feel fine. I feel better with that. And if you look at every number 
that we tracked, he actually lost so much weight. I thought he had cancer when he came back to see me. I was like, oh, my gosh, like you've lost a ton of weight. He looked great. He was able to come down off of those medications. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing he did. He coupled that with uh, walking briskly for an hour and 15 minutes every day. And he did that religiously and was able to do it even on the road. So um, that, I think, coupled with what he was doing, that that really worked for him. But that doesn't work for everybody. I mean, I, I really try to give patients the leeway to say, hey, you may want to modify this a little bit. If you have a goal, you want to go run a marathon, you're going to have to have more carbohydrates in there to sort of fuel that. Um, but I do think I, I do appreciate that you've, you know, sort of identified that as natural carbohydrates, say with fruits, because that's that's an excellent yeah, way to get not, it. I mean, honestly, for the past, say, four months, I haven't had any processed sugar. It's all been natural sugar from mainly fruits and other foods and stuff and whatnot. But uh, and, and another thing that you did mention is that people feel more full on protein. I still eat a lot. I still eat mainly mainly 85, 90% meat in my diet, but I also have a side of fruit and maybe peppers, mushrooms, and onions, and that's yeah. mainly it. And I, and I mainly feel 100% all the time. Yeah. Sometimes my, sometimes my food could be a little off, but I feel like that's because maybe a small lack of fiber. Yep. Probably so. Uh, yeah, and that particularly with that much protein in your diet, people tend to be a little bit more on the constipated side, so... Um, Sneaking some uh, stuff. I'm like Fockler. I got like Fockler every, every 24 hours. That's Perfect. awesome. Yeah, I, I, a little bit of fiber is not going to hurt you. And it actually, long term, I mean, there are some other things, you know, that, that it might improve too, like uh, colorectal cancer and that kind of thing, you know, with the, sneaking some fiber in there with some, some vegetables. I think that's working for you, though. So I'd keep doing it. Yes, sir. Yeah, over the past, like, uh, about four months, I've, I've lost over 30 pounds, and now I'm maintaining at about 195, and still have all of my strength, but I have a lot more definition. I haven't lost any strength either, which is really, that's great. I do work, I do work out in box. So. Yeah, no, that's great, great. Ethan. I, I think you have set out the prescription probably for a lot of people today. So I do appreciate that call and uh, describing that and sort of discussing it. So good luck so I really to appreciate it and making it more noticeable to the public that. You know, what's common is not always right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You do have to sort of tailor it to the individual person. The best outcomes with any type of illness, whether that's an acute illness that is self-limiting or has minimal treatment, and then you're going to get over it, or it's something that's going to last for the rest of your life. If it's a chronic illness, every patient's going to be, do better if they understand more about that. So ask questions, get the right information. Don't just get all the information because there's certainly some sources out there that have all kinds of misinformation. Um, find somebody that you trust um, that's going to communicate with you in a way that that sort of fits your style and what you need. And then think about all the things that you can do, whether that's um, some changes in your diet, whether that's changes in your physical activity level, uh, because those things are very powerful. And you may have spent 50, 60, maybe even 70 years of your life and contributing to some things with some behaviors that you've picked up over the years 
um, to that have uh, adversely affected your health. But it is never too late to really change those. Now, certainly it's better to prevent them if the earlier you start. So it'd be great to ingrain those in your kids, make that a family type thing. Um, but if not, don't feel like that you just can't go down that direction or that you can't make it work for you with your food preferences. I mean, that is a huge misconception that, well, there's no way. I mean, I love meat too much or I love steaks too much. I guarantee you there's there's something that you can do that can incorporate those almost every time with whatever medical condition you have. So just a little bit of encouragement in that direction. That's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.